Now, many of our talks just entry might be a bit more practical. It might end, as we look at the Bible, with some wisdom from God on, and end with a kind of list of these are the things that are a good idea to do and not do. Okay? Others, maybe, different passages, might be more kind of comforting and encouraging uh, in different ways. Now, these to talk say we'll have some practical things, it will have some encouragement in it, but I just want to say right at the start, it's probably not those kind of talks today. I, I tell you where I'm heading today, and I need the Holy Spirit to help me here for me to say this and to you to, to, to accept this, is I'm aiming for us at the end of this talk to simply go away with a bigger view of God than we have right now. For some of us, it will be a reminder of things we know already. For others who are Christians here, it might be something slightly new. There might be a, an altering to how you view God that needs to happen. And I, I'll pull no punches about it. I want us to leave uh, today with a new sense of awe and reverence and learning what it is somewhat more to tremble before God. Because we know that God loves us and we know that God's for us and we know that God saves us. But sometimes we've got to step back and realise he doesn't exist primarily for us. I'll unpack that as we go along. But we've got to realise it's about him. And we serve one who is mighty and one who's beyond us and above us. And I want us, as I said, to leave today with a sense of awe uh, in him. If you're not a Christian uh, today, uh, very welcome, as Jonathan said, if you're a visitor here. What I'd like to do for you, and uh, why this is relevant to you, is I want to lay out to you with no filters uh, and no apologies, our God. And uh, I want to show him to you. He's the God we're going to spend the rest of the morning worshipping. He's the God we serve and he's the God we love. And I'd love for you, my prayer for you would be that today you consider your position before this mighty, holy, majestic God. Okay, so there we go. That's where we're going, hopefully. Without further ado, then that should give you more than enough time to open your Bible to Luke 21. I'm simply reading from verses 5 to 7 today. Very short but sweet. Remember, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and uh, he set up shop in the temple. And again, he's at the temple. And this is what it says, Luke 21, 5 to 7. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, I know it's slightly odd to finish the passage on a question like that, but be assured next week I'm going to deal with the response to that question. Today I really want us to pause and focus just on the context of all we're going to see next week and really what this whole passage is about. Because I think I felt I couldn't move on from the very simple fact we see in uh, these two, three verses here. Next week, as I said, we'll look at Jesus' answer. And this answer this question the disciples give him uh, as they come and they, that they look at this wonderful temple there is in Jerusalem, uh, re- renovated in 20 BC, started in 20 BC by King Herod the Great. It would have been anyone going to uh, Jerusalem at that time would have uh, seen this temple and been, been amazed. It was an incredible thing. But as you notice in verse 6, Jesus does not continue their architectural admiration He makes this amazing statement. No, no, the whole thing's going to be destroyed. And so they obviously ask, well, that's a a massive deal. When when is this going to happen? As Jesus answered next week, has some very mysterious uh, and puzzling elements in that actually could take our attention and distract us from the main purpose of this whole passage, which is clearly in these verses. And in fact, I I go as far as saying that probably some of the translators of of our Bibles 
I've got a bit distracted with these things. So we'll do a show of hands on this. Who would have in a Bible in front of them, the subheading for this would be uh, signs of the end of the age or something like that. Who have that? Okay, it seems like it's, you read it and think, oh, that's the subheading. Because this must be about, all about, the focal point here is about the very end of time. Okay, the apocalypse, the end times, the judgment day, Jesus' second coming. And as we'll see next week, that does feature. It does feature uh, in the rest of the passage. However, that's not the focus of this passage. It'd be slightly odd if the disciples had gone to Jesus. Tell us about when the temple will actually be destroyed. This building that is standing here, and he goes, ah, let me tell you about the second coming. It'd have been like, well, no, we didn't ask that question. This passage, as we'll see next week as well, relates to a historical event that happened about 40 years after Jesus said these things at the temple. 70 AD, the Roman army destroyed the Jewish temple once and for all. Like Jesus said, it it came true exactly as he said, raised completely to the ground. I think often this happens when we read the Bible. Uh, We we take quite a me-centred approach to the Bible. And and that would be something that we think the Bible must have been written for me. So if something's not instantly relevant to me... I've got to try to read something else into it or find something else more interesting. And so sometimes I think with a passage like this, we can think, well, what relevance does the destruction of some old building thousands of years ago have to me? Well, not really a lot, I imagine. So let's find something more interesting. Oh, well, it must be more about Jesus' second coming. That's much more tantalizing. That's much more interesting. The, the problem with that approach, approach, particularly in this passage, is this not a throwaway reference by Luke? In fact, it could be said that for the last eight chapters at least, Luke has been preparing his reader for the revelation that this physical temple, these blocks of stones in front of him, are going to be knocked down. It's going to be destroyed. Or through Luke's gospel, uh, we see Jesus alluding to the fact that God is going to forcefully take the kingdom from uh, the Jews, from the people of Israel, and give it to others. And he gives parables about that. He uses different images. He's one image of a, an axe at the, the, the root of a fruitless fig tree. The idea is the fig tree was the people of God Israel. He was going to bring an end to it. Later on, Owen preached it the other week. Uh, the image of a vineyard owner coming back to see how his tenants were dealing uh, with the vineyard. Not doing a good job. So he says, I will take the vineyard off those tenants and give it to someone else. But he doesn't always speak in parables. And, In those metaphors, he gives detail as well about exactly how this will happen. And all of these uh, references point to the event that he predicts very clearly in this passage. So, for example, in Luke 13, 34 to 35, these are passages you've been with us, you would have heard, uh, heard sermons on. But just to remind you, Jesus says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. He's not being around the bush. He's talking about an event in history. He's hinting about it. Luke 19, uh, using exactly some of the language we'll look at next week. That He talks about Luke 21 again. Luke preparing us, Jesus preparing us for this incredible, shocking revelation of what will happen. It's in verse 41 to 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace... But now it's hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. He's not talking in riddles. 
He's talking about an actual event that will happen to them where not stone one stone will be left on the other. You know what? This physical act, this act of history, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, was so important to Jesus that even on his way to the cross, it was at the forefront of his mind. I think for many Christians, we like to think as Jesus ascended the hill to go to the cross, that each of us individually, we were right in his mind. He was dying for us, like he was muttering our names on his breath. He wasn't. As far as the, the Bible would tell us, the, the Luke's account in Luke's gospel would tell us what was on Jesus' mind at that point. It was the oncoming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Amazing. Jesus is about to save the whole world, take away their sins. What's he thinking about? The destruction of the temple. Luke 23, 28 to 41. Jesus is on the way to the cross, going up the hill. He's there, his last walk before he's going to be hung up on it. There's mourners behind him and he turns to them and it says this in verse 28. Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women. The wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What's he talking about? He's talking about a time coming in those people's lifetime when something so bad is going to happen to their city, they'll call for the mountains to fall on them. This is a massive deal for Jesus. It's a huge deal. This is incredibly important to him. And we've therefore got to learn, why? Why is this such a big deal? You might have seen in the week uh, just gone um, in Syria, terrible thing. Uh, some ISIS fighters, they, they found a, a, a Christian monastery. You ever see this in the news this week? I think it was this week or last week. Uh, and they blew the whole thing to smithereens. It's kind of get rid of any trace of Christianity. And uh, you might think, oh, that's, that's awful. It's terrible. Cultural significance of that, that place, religious significance, all of those things. It's awful. But let's face it, in about 100 years, people are not going to be gathering to hear a talk about that event. They're not going to be, let alone 2,000 years. This is just some old building, isn't it? What's the significance? Well, I think to answer that question, we actually do need to know a little bit about what actually happened to the temple, briefly as I can. I think it's easy to explain that. I mean, as you probably know, uh, Rome at this time of Jesus uh, ruled over Palestine and uh, they, were, they were oversaw the whole area and the, the Jews were uh, a subjugated people and obviously in a situation like that that's never an easy relationship but particularly for the Jewish people with the promises they had about the land they believed this land was given them by God and then you've got these pagans coming in and ruling over them and it was always tensions boiling over but in 66 AD uh, there was uh, a particular rebellion from some of the Jewish, uh, Jewish people, and the Romans hit back really hard. They actually plundered the temple, uh, a lot of the stuff from it, the sacred articles, and they executed thousands of Jews. And this was the last straw for many Jews, many of the zealot a faction and others, and a full-scale rebellion against Rome broke out. And uh, you can probably see where this is going, seeing as you've got Rome up here, Palestine down here. I mean, Rome is the biggest empire in the world. Rebelling against Rome, how much you want to do it, is going to end in tears. And the, the actually, Jewish forces did quite well to start with, but actually by 70 AD, uh, the, the Roman army had taken out all of the strongholds around Jerusalem. They closed in, exactly as we'll see Jesus prophesize uh, next week, and uh, they break through three of the city walls. They set the city on fire. The survivors are sold into slavery, and some reports estimate up to a million Jewish people lose their lives on that occasion. Also, of course, the temple is utterly destroyed, completely destroyed, just as Jesus had said. But, but why is it different to that monastery this week? 
But you've got to understand, this is not just some building. This is not just some uh, religious relic. This is God's temple. This represents and is the focal point of a, a thousand years of Israel's relationship with the living God. It was the house that bore his name. It was where he dwelt. And it's raised to the ground. But it's not just that. Jesus also made clear who was responsible for the destruction of the temple. And for this, we do need to flash forward uh, to next week. Because later in chapter 21, he describes this where Jesus is prophesying about what's going to happen. In verse 20, he says this. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. Obviously, who was responsible for the sacking of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Well, the Romans had quite a lot to do with that, I would imagine, most historians would say. But from Jesus' perspective, someone else was behind it. It was a time of punishment in fulfillment of all that had been written. All that had been written, what's written in the Old Testament of the Bible, punishment from who? Well, from God. What's happening? God's destroying his own house. God is bringing a final close to the people of God as ethnic Israel project. It's completely shocking, utterly bewildering for the people involved. I don't think there's uh, any example we could think of now that would bring the force of this. <laughs> and the example I'm going to use now probably isn't going to, but I tried my hardest, so please, uh, please uh, don't be too cruel on me. Let's imagine, are there any, let's just imagine this last question. Are there any Americans here, anyone born in America? Someone, I, of course, great, great work, Derek, good to see you back. Okay, Derek will be able to understand this. Most of us, we just have to do some mind games, transport yourself into Derek's mind right now. Imagine you're an American, and you woke up uh, one morning, and you found out on the news that the Statue of Liberty, the White House, and the Pentagon had all been destroyed overnight, okay? Now, let's imagine also that on the, the television, straight away, as you're watching the news, just staggered by this, the, the, uh, the, the person responsible comes on to do a broadcast and uh, they pull off a mask and you find it's Abraham Lincoln. How did this happen? You see, what? what is this? I tried my hardest, you know. You'd probably be thinking, how did he survive that shooting incident a long time ago? But the whole point is we've got no way we can understand this. The one whose temple it was has destroyed the temple. This is something that shaped the whole national identity of God's people. You might object, you might say a different way. Well, let's face it, I've been at Church Central for a while, and this does come up every now and again, and I remember this happening before. A while ago, if you were here for the Big Story series, this is not the first time this has happened to this temple. And so you say, well, what's the difference? This happened before, you know, it's just another destruction of the temple. Now, you'd be right, 587 BC, Solomon's temple, the original temple, destroyed by Babylon. But, 50 years later, it was rebuilt by the Archives and actually, the second temple, rather originally named, I think that one, Zerubbabel's temple, uh, that also uh, fell into disrepair. But 50, uh, 20 BC, King Herod the Great renovates and rebuilds it. And so by the time the disciples come, they were admiring it. So what's the difference here? The difference now is this is final. It's finished. You go to Jerusalem today. The remains of Herod's temple are buried beneath one of the most important uh, mosques in Islam, the Dome of the Rock Mosque. And even for many Jews, devout Jews, they would see it very, very difficult to see a time when there could possibly be a temple rebuilt upon that land. Jewish religious life has never recovered from the blow Jesus predicts here. 
The sacrifice system was finished. The priesthood comes to an end. And many important elements of Jewish worship have become completely impossible because they all revolved around this building. This is staggering. This is shocking. This is why it occupied Jesus' mind. This is why Luke is at such pains to draw us to a historical fact, an incredible, one of the most shocking facts of history in many ways. And so we've got to ask this question. It's the question we should always ask primarily when we come to the Bible. Every time you open your Bible, you think, what should I get out of this today? This is the question to ask, and we should ask it here. What then does this tell us about God? What does this teach us about God? What kind of God would destroy his own temple? I think we learned three things from God, about God. There could be more, but from this, this event. It would be wise for us to settle and to ruminate and to meditate on these things now and as we go away today. The first is this. What kind of God would destroy his own temple? Well, it's a God who hates sin. That's the kind of God. A God who hates sin. One of the reasons that God went to such extreme lengths here is because the people of Israel were living in rebellion against sin. When the first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed, the prophets in the Old Testament made it very clear why that temple was destroyed. It was mainly idolatry and lack of care for the poor, actually. We get less detail on this one, but we know that sin is still at the heart of it. And we know it because when Jesus came a few weeks ago and we looked at it, he came to the temple, having come into Jerusalem on the donkey. He comes to the temple and he looks around and what does he find there? What does he describe it as? A den of robbers, so he calls it. He comes in. Remember, in the temple, the, the most sacred is called the Holy of Holies. Holy means perfect, pure, set apart. Jesus comes to the place that should be holy. What does he find? Robbers, thieves, extortion, sin. God is so serious about sin, he's prepared to torch his own house to get rid of it. I'm sure if you've been a Christian for any time, you'd have had this thought would have gone through your head uh, on probably a number of occasions. You'd, you'd have had uh, some area in your life where you know there is a sin or a temptation to sin or a, a kind of habit that's been going on that you know God's not keen of or a kind of way of thinking or something you do and it, you know God's not keen on it but you think to yourself, well, look, I give God quite a lot in my life actually. I, I kind of get up early on a Sunday. I, uh, I'm pretty good to other people. I'm doing all these things, right? Surely God doesn't really care about that. Surely that doesn't really matter to him. I mean, everyone's doing it. I mean, everyone on the telly tells me it's okay. But God doesn't like it. Come on, it's just a small thing. Whenever that thought crosses your mind, I want you to summon up a visual image of God's temple in flames. Because God hates sin so much, he would torch his own house to get rid of it. Do those things matter to God? Does God care? Yes, he really cares. This proves it once and for all. He's a God who hates sin. Secondly, what do we learn about God? What kind of God would would destroy his own temple? He's a God who won't be boxed in. He's a God who won't be boxed in. The second reason we can see that God destroyed his temple was that it had come to represent the constraints that God's people had put upon God. I mean, the whole temple idea of a a house for God 
instantly has this built into it, doesn't it? And, and Solomon recognised this right at the beginning. You can't just fit God in a house. He doesn't fit. That's not going to work, okay? Uh, 2 Chronicles 6, verse 18. Solomon, as he prays at the beginning of the very opening of the first temple, he says, But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built? If you met someone who said, oh yes, but no, God must now live in the temple, it would be clear they've constrained God in a way that, that actually that's not what the whole thing was all about. Strangely though, the people of the temple, Israel, had done exactly the same thing to God without maybe doing it literally as regards to the temple. The temple represents the constraints that Israel had put on God. Because right from the beginning, Israel was supposed to be about more than themselves. Abraham, the forefather uh, of Israel, he was told that through you and through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That was the plan. That was the purpose of Project Israel. God was choosing a people for the good of the whole world, not to keep him for themselves. He never intended to be contained forever in one nation as a pokey little national deity. And so remember back to... I quoted a minute ago, Jesus comes to the temple, having come in, what did he find? He found a den of robbers. In Luke 19, he says, though, what he expected to find. What did he expect to find? He says, Luke 19, 46, it is written, he said to them, Jesus says this, as he comes to the temple the first time on this visit to Jerusalem, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer. Okay, it's a point like this, we just need to kind of step back a little bit and realise Sometimes, just sometimes, the writers of the Gospels expect a little more than we can deliver. Because Luke here is quoting a passage from Isaiah, and he doesn't finish the quote, but he expects us to know. So those of you here who haven't memorised the entire Old Testament, won't ask for a show of hands on that one, but I would have thought probably most of us, okay, um, we probably need a little help here. So what's the full quote that he's quoting? Isaiah 56 verse 7 says this, My house will be called a house of prayer, for all nations. As Jesus said that, he expected people to know. Jesus coming to the temple. His problem was not, it's a bit noisy in here. I thought everyone should be on their knees praying. There's lots of noise, there's lots of commerce. That's not the issue. The issue is, my house is meant to be a house for all nations. And all I see is exclusiveness, insularness, smallness. The big sign saying, Gentiles, no further. And there was nothing in place to make that happen, to change that scenario. God has never been keen on people who like to keep him to themselves. Never. And when people do that, the God of heaven is likely to break out, and at times it means leaving those people behind. I think we've got to learn these things. We've got to, we've got to take these things seriously. As a, as a leader... Uh, at this church, I, I want to know. I feel a weight about this stuff. I just come back from a holiday. Come on, show me some pity. You know, <laughs> I come back yesterday. Ah, oh, stretch back to this. There's a weight here. There's a seriousness here. This strikes against the lightness of so much that we we deal with day in day out. As leaders, you know what? I, I know some of you would probably wish we stopped harping on about some of this stuff. This stuff features in most of our talks. I, I know when you get that. And sometimes you'll think, look, sin again? Can it be? You know what? I feel a weight. We've got to warn you from sin. God takes it deadly seriously. 
some of you, I'm sure this would be the case as, as I stand up or Jonathan stands up or Andy or Owen and again urges you, you know, remember those guys outside there. Remember the, the, the mums of your kids' friends. Remember your neighbours. Remember your, your workmates. And all you're thinking is, look, I'm doing my best. I'm serving. I'm, I'm, I'm helping others in the church. Could you just stop driving me further? Let's leave it at that. I'm helping. I'm doing what I can. You know what? I value so highly. I know uh, all, of, uh, all of you, I would imagine, here would value being part of a community where people so selflessly serve. So sincerely, it's wonderful. But listen, if we work hard and do lots for something that essentially becomes just about us and we just start paying lip service to those out there, there will come a time when Jesus will come in, look around and say, I expected it to be a house of prayer for all nations. It's gone. I don't want us to waste our effort. He's a God who won't be boxed in. And thirdly and finally, what do we learn about the God who destroys his own temple? He's a God who is committed to his purposes and not to our traditions. He's a God who's committed to his purposes and not to our traditions. I think that for me, the first two points make us tremble at our responsibility before God. This, this point just makes us tremble. Just leaves us on our knees before him. Because in a very real way, while I stand by those first two points, I think, why did God destroy the temple? Those are definitely there. From a different angle, at the same time, you could ask the question, why did God destroy the temple? And ask it slightly differently. And the reason would be this. Because it had served its purpose. It had done what it was intended to do, and God moved on to something else. The temple had was God's idea. It had been very important to God's people for thousands of years. Well, for a thousand years at least. And it served all sorts of purposes, and they were good purposes. It gathered the people of God. It helped provide them with national identity. It had been the home for the sacrifice system. It had been the workplace for the priests. They were all good things. But they were all temporary things. They were all there to point forward to something else. And that something else was someone else. And he was the one who was speaking to the people at this point, to Jesus. Through Jesus, God's people are now extended beyond the borders of ethnic Israel. Looking around there, I'm assuming almost all of us are pretty happy about that, you know. So he it even to us. They didn't need a national monument as a gathering point anymore. Through Jesus... The ultimate sacrificial lamb. Our sins have been dealt with once and for all. There's no need for continual sacrifices. Some of you go back to God daily and say, Oh God, I'm so sorry again, as if we need to sacrifice every day. No, no, no. He forgave us once and for all on that cross. Why do we need to go back and do that? Through Jesus, our great high priest, we now have uninterrupted access to the Father, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us, if we trust him. We don't need a priesthood anymore. Completely irrelevant. There is a sense in which even if Israel had been completely righteous, even if they'd realised the scope of God's plans for his people, there would still have come a day when the temple was no longer needed. Because God's plan was for his church to be his temple. And it's God's purposes that win. It's our traditions that always have to go. God has a commitment to his eternal purposes that do not flinch in the face of our religious constructs, organisations and systems, however precious they are to us. 
This is true at that time, and it's been true ever since. And we can see it all over the place. Church history is full of instances of fantastic godly movements and organisations and denominations and churches that serve God very, very faithfully for a time. And then you look 50 years down the line and those things have gone. They've disappeared. As you go around Birmingham, you'll see all sorts of uh, church buildings around the place. And uh, thank God so many of those are full of communities working out how to serve God in our generation and the, uh, the pushing forward on that. But we all know many of those buildings would be either empty or with congregations dwindling to such a point that the conversations would be being had around our city now, I'm sure, of places saying, look, we need to work out how to shut this thing down. This is, it used to be thriving, it used to work, but it's gone, it's finished. There are whole denominations that once thrived and had national political significance. And now you look at them and they just, they're going through the motions. No firm convictions on God's word even on the person of Jesus. And in one sense, we can look on those things with sadness, and we should look on them with sadness. And if we look at individual cases, I'm, I'm sure we'd find behind the decline often is sin or a small-minded insulinness. I'm sure that would be the case. But I think there's another case, sense in which we ask God, well, why the empty church buildings, God? How could you desert that congregation? God would say, well, no, but you don't understand. I was never committed to that congregation, I was committed to my purposes. I've moved on. Because it's his purposes that rule. It's his purposes that go forward. Our traditions, he's not sentimental to, like we can often be. So let's put the gaze on ourselves. I don't think this is helpful to do all the time. But I think it does have a value. Did you know that one day, Church Central won't exist? Very likely, Jesus could come back before. But it's very likely. Did you know one day, New Frontiers, the family of churches we're part of, Catalyst, part of New Frontiers, it will be at best a Wikipedia entry. Did you know, some of you, I know that you're involved in other great Christian movements and organisations. It's almost certain that one day those things will disband. Because you see, just like the temple, all of these things are halfway houses towards God's ultimate purposes. I need to get this in quickly. Please, Jonathan, standing there. That's it, sitting there right there. Um, I, this isn't a big wind-up to a notice at the end of the day. Jonathan has got a notice for us here. No, we're not getting cold feet. We're not thinking, well, wait, wait a minute, we're these promises of God. I'm not sure they're there. No, that's not the case at all. In fact, I'd go even further than that. We're sure that, and we're confident that we have a part to play in this city now that God, to bring God's purposes forward in our city and our generation. We see evidence of that. We see God's hand at work in things. We see, although things can be tough, we see God speaking. We believe that. We trust that. You know what? Sometimes it's helpful to step back and realise that God does not exist for Church Central. Church Central exists for God. And it's not about us building something impressive, like that temple, shiny, and the sun, apparently the sun would have reflected off every bit of it, so that when the sun rose, that temple would have been almost blinding, and the disciples were wow, look at this temple. And we're not about that. And if we ever get to be about that, we need to be very careful. It's not about building something like that. It's about the God of heaven whose purposes will prevail. And we're either with him or we're left behind. It should breed a healthy humility at the root of our faith and the root of our knowledge of God that says, God, it's about your purposes, not my plans. 
God, it's about your will and not mine. God, it's about your kingdom and not my empire. He will leave us, hope, I hope, I pray, in awe of a God who is utterly single-minded in carrying out his purposes on the earth. Will those purposes turn out for our good? Yes, if you're a Christian, they definitely will. Will those purposes ultimately be proved wise and right? Look at what God did with the temple. I mean, none of us want to trek over to Jerusalem every holiday, do we? We've got Jesus now. Yes, of course they will. God's purposes are good. They're correct. Will those purposes always be in line with our preferences, our expectations, and our traditions? No, they won't. Sometimes they will, but not all the time. How then should we respond to a God who destroys his own temple? We should respond in awe and humility. We should respond in amazement and trembling worship. We should respond in holiness and by making him known to those who don't know him yet. We should respond by holding, in a sense, absolutely everything of our plans with a degree of lightness except for our utter allegiance to his name and his purposes and his will. That's the God that we worship and that's the God that we serve. 